in life, uh, there are questions. A lot of questions. But there are some questions that you are guaranteed to be asked. It's just going to happen. You can't get around it. It's just a part of being born, all right? So, for example, when you're little and something happens and you begin to cry and throw a tantrum, you're going to have a question, which is, are you going to keep crying or do you want me to give you something to cry about? Right? One of the first questions you experience in life, you know? And so every kid gets that question. And if they were really aware as much as they could be, they'd be like, no, I'm crying. I don't want you. I have something. But they don't do that, right? So, but that's a question. Or uh, you, you, you get into life a little bit further. You go off to high school. You're sitting in the class. You got the class clown. He does something. You start laughing. And they ask you what you think he's funny. If I didn't, I wouldn't be laughing, apparently. I think he's very funny, right? So that's a question you get. You get a driver's license. You get pulled over for the first time. You're going to get the question, do you know why I'm pulling you over? And you're going to be confused. Was it the speeding? Was it the texting? Was it the fact that I was checking myself in the mirror? I don't know. Which one, you know? Um, that's a question you're going to be asked in life. But when we become adults, there is a question, even in your late teens, that becomes ongoing, right? We face it, I, I, I think, annually in, in different contexts, in different forms. Uh, we face this question. And it's where somebody comes to us and they say, do you want the bad news or the good news first? And see, those other questions, uh, while always happening in environments that are a little serious, you're getting in trouble with mom and dad, you're getting in trouble with the teacher, you're getting in trouble with a law enforcement officer, uh, this question has a different impact, right? Because uh, we hear that and we go, oh man, um, wh what do I do? Because just I, I, if I want to get it over, give me the bad news, right? But what we long for, what we desire as human beings is the good news. See, good news for us, that makes us happy inside. Good news makes us secure. Good news is that thing we delight in. Good news gives us joy. Good news makes us thankful. Good news establishes a sense of peace. And so we go, man, good news is what I really live my life for. I hope that today I wake up and somewhere along the line I am given good news. But bad news... We go, oh man, bad news, that creates anxiety. Even when the question's asked, as soon as it's, or the bad news, you can get nervous. Your hands might get a little sweaty. Uh, you realize that there's going to be some discouragement, maybe some depression, maybe some real legitimate fear, maybe some unknowns that just create a heavy burden. And so you, you, you buckle in for whatever the bad news is. Now, I, I think about that. And I, and I think about life in a lot of ways. Um, and, and it's interesting because what that causes in us is the desire to just pursue good news as much as possible. You know, where it's just like, I, I would prefer that most things in life would just be good. And, and, and what that causes in us is this problem where we are now at the mercy of news. We are at the mercy of trying to find good news and avoid bad news. Because bad is a downer and good is an upper. And we want uppers and we don't want downers. And so we chase and we chase and we chase. And we hope that maybe if today had bad news, at least tomorrow might have some good news. And so we're constantly running and constantly hoping. And we want to find the good always and avoid the bad. But, but here's a, a, a truth. That, that sometimes we don't want to own. I think especially as Americans where we have a lot of comfort and luxury at our disposal. Uh, the reality is, you and I, we were born into a bad news world. It's just a bad news world. And more often than not, you will receive bad news over good news. And more often than not, the bad news will always be heavier then the good news is uplifting. Right? In other words, uh, think about some of the, the, the worst news you can get in life. Your child has cancer and has six months to live. Can you think of any news that would be good that could outweigh that kind of bad news? That could counterbalance it? 
your spouse has a heart condition and they're going to need a transplant, or your child was born with a severe challenge physically and the rest of their life is, is they're going to need to be massively catered to. You find out that your spouse cheated on you. You found out that your kids are doing drugs or doing things behind your back that break your heart. It's very hard to find the counterbalances of good news to deal with that kind of bad news. So the world is always trying to help us. No, no, no. Uh, you can find good news. If you win the lottery, that's going to be good news. Yeah, read those guys' stories. Right? You just have the right career, that's going to be good news. Well, not always. Sometimes you have to deal with a lot of bad news. So the reality is, no matter what life promises, good news-wise, the reality is it doesn't offer true happiness. You're not going to find lasting, true happiness in this world based on what the world offers up as good news. Even the good is not going to be really that good. So we, we face a lot of bad. But then Jesus rolls in on the scene. Right? And, and he does something that, that really kind of blows my mind when I look at it. And, and that is that Jesus says, you know what? I want to give you a new type of good news. Right? And this new good news sort of transcends the bad news of the world. And why it transcends it is because it's not good news of this world. It's a good news unlike the world understands. It's a good news like the world can fathom. And, and so what it offers is good. It's really not going to be good enough. What I offer is supreme and superb. Because again, it isn't then directed by life circumstances. It's transcendent to life's circumstances. It is a good news that lets you live in a bad news world. It's a good news perspective. So that when bad things happen, you can face it with a certain attitude, a certain way of thinking, a certain perspective on life. You realize that even the bad can be for your good. In fact, if anything, you begin to realize that many of the bad things that happen in life are really good things in the big perspective. They really are working something in us. They're really shaping our person. They're really making us what we're meant to be for eternity, even if in the present... It hurts. If in the present we're reminded of the frailty of this world and the fact that it doesn't offer true, lasting satisfaction. See, that's what Jesus offers in His good news. He says, stop chasing good news. Rather, stand in good news. Stand in good news. Good news of peace. Good news of hope. Good news of beauty. Good news of thankfulness. Good news of joy but not like we're used to having in the world. It's something very different. It's something from Him, not rooted in circumstance, but rooted in trusting a God who is sufficient, who is sovereign, who is invested. See, that's Jesus' heart, and that's what He displays in His life. He shows a good news attitude and a bad news world, and we see this pretty profoundly in the last frames of His earthly ministry. I mean, when you get to that point, man, you really see him living this out in a very bold way. So with that said, if you have a phone app or a Kindle or an iPad or something as crazy as a leathery thing with paper in it called Bible, um, you can get that out right now and you can open up to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. The Gospel of Mark chapter 14. Now, we are taking a very big chunk this morning. We're going from chapter 14, verse 1, to chapter 15, verse 15. That's a big chunk. And because it's Palm Sunday, a, a lot of this is virtually like um, uh, an honorary read-through, if you will, of this, the, the, these final hours of the life of Jesus before the cross. We're going to stop right as he's delivered to crucifixion. And then we'll pick it back up on Friday night at 7 o'clock. But, but here we're going to see a lot of information all rolling out as we look at, just again, the last slivers of his earthly existence, earthly life, some of the things that he faced. And I want you to keep in mind, uh, good news in a bad news world. All right? Now, now as we go through this too, I want you to know, there's going to be a couple of places where I skip some stories. That's intentional. And we'll come back to those. Because I want you to see something that's beginning 
to unfold, right? Now, think about the story as you know it. Jesus rides into town. Uh, We say Palm Sunday. Realistically, we believe it was probably a Monday when he rode into town. And he came in like a rock star. Right? And the masses are excited. They're tearing off palm branches. They're putting it before Jesus as he's riding a donkey into town. They're throwing down their coats. They're singing, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That word Hosanna means, God, save us, please. God, save us. You are the one. You are the long-form Messiah. You are the one that can deliver us. Jesus, we love you. We dig you. We want you. We thank you. You are going to turn it all around for us, right? So, very exciting entrance. But that's early in the week. In fact, from that entrance, if any of us were a part of it, you know what we would say? This is good news. This is rocking awesome, man. Everybody is stoked that we're here. This is fabulous. It can't get any better, man. This is Monday by Friday. It's going to be the shizzle, right? I mean, it's just so great. So great. This can't get any better, can it? Oh, no, it's going to get better, man. He's just coming to town. Wait till he sets up the band. It's going to be rocking. Right? So very, very cool entrance. But see, Jesus knows that the hearts of people are fickle and envious and callous. And Jesus knows that uh, no rock star entrance is going to change all of that. And so while they're all excited because they're ultimately very shallow, Jesus knows that there's a deeper foe to fight. The human heart is very, very corrupted, very broken. And it's broken in a context of religion. So Jesus has to roll into town and begin to confront all of that mess. And so pretty much on Tuesday and rolling forward, he starts to do that. Right? You, you look at what he does. He goes to the temple. He says, no, no, no. You guys have blown it. He's flipping tables. He's throwing coin. He's slapping down uh, ideas right there in the space where God should be worshipped. He says, no. And then he curses a tree. Poor tree's just chilling, right? Dies. But he kills the tree to say, that's what Israel is. It's fruitless. It's barren. It's dying. Because it's religious. From there, he gets into some pretty substantial debates with the religious leadership and in the context of that, says, you guys are just hypocrites. You people should not follow these yahoos. Unless you just want to go straight to hell, follow. If you don't want to go to hell, stop following these guys because they're hypocritical, they're liars, they're just trying to entrap people and rule over people with rules that don't save. So the week is very intense. In fact, when you get to chapter 13 of Mark, Jesus just goes the extra mile and says, here's what's really going to go down. God is going to basically bust this nation in half and he's going to destroy its temple and scatter its religion and wipe out all of its bad leaders. Right? So Jesus is on a mission. And because that is the mission, as soon as he leaves that temple area and he said, it's going to be destroyed, you see this rapid descent in the Gospel of Mark where everything just begins to plummet and the news begins to shift to bad very quickly. Monday, good news. Everybody's excited. Roll in through Wednesday into Thursday. Man, free fall. Where everything starts turning against him. Right? And so, very rapidly, we see the temperature go down, the light go away, things start to get bad. Now, it starts in Mark chapter 14, verse 1. It says, it was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, uh, this was a big celebration, Passover, right? God's deliverance for the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? So uh, the angel of death is going to swoop in. He's got a sickle. He's going to wipe out all the firstborn unless you kill a a lamb and you put the blood over the posts of your house at the door. And then he's going to pass over your house so you're not judged by God's wrath. Passover. And so they celebrate the fact that God passed over them. They also celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is God said, you've got to move, you've got to go now, get out of Egypt. Don't even let the bread rise. Now I know some of you Rachel Ray types would be freaking out about that. No, we need the bread to rise. You know, no, don't let the bread rise. You go, man. Just take flat bread and eat it. All right? So they have this Passover Feast of Unleavened Bread thing. And by this time in Israel's history, this is just a giant party. 
I mean, they love this. All the family gets together. There's a lot of wine. There's a lot of food. There's a lot of just singing and festivity. A lot of relatives are coming into town for this. It's like the 4th of July in a trailer park with a thousand Roman candles and a keg. It's dangerous. All right? Fun. Cousin Eddie is the guy leading it. You know, I mean, it's just dangerous. And, and the Romans know this. The Romans are always worried about the Passover because it's like these guys all roll into town. It gets crazy. Revolts happen because somebody just gets stupid. So Rome is nervous, but Israel's excited. And the Jews love it. And this is, again, remembering what God has done for them. That's the big idea. So very holy, very special, very exciting for them. But it's against that backdrop that it says... And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him, Jesus, by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, let there be an up, lest there be an uproar from the people. Right here is the very first thing you see. It's the plot. The plot. Like I said, it's a descent. So Jesus says, the religion is broken, the temple's going to be destroyed, it's all doomed. But see, they don't know that. So what they think is... The problem isn't them and their temple and their system. The problem is Jesus. So we need to deal with him. And they are so sinister, they're willing to do it on a holy day or a holy week. Start to plot this out. Well, what should we do? How should we do it? It's got to be stealthy. It's got to be in secret. We got to deal with this guy. And hey, man, if it's now, it's now. We just got to figure it out. But again, very callous, very cold. It would be like a, a, a church all getting together on Christmas Eve and voting to fire the pastor. You know what I mean? Like, should we tell them, like, after the Christmas Eve service? Yeah, like, it'd be like that, just cold-hearted, you know? And, and, and so it's the same idea here. They're just plotting. It's just totally cold-hearted. But again, these are the enemies of Jesus. We're, we're used to these guys as the bad guys. But the plot has then embedded into it a plan. And what's the plan? Jump to verse 10. It says, then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad. I'm sure they were, ooh, yay! Right? Because they're sinister. They were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, this is what I mean by the rapid descent. Yeah, Jesus has been against religion, religion's been against Jesus, but Jesus has had the twelve, and they're supposed to get it. And among the twelve is this Judas guy. And Judas has been empowered. Judas has been trusted. Judas has been sent out. Judas oversees the money box of the apostles. This is a trusted guy. And now he goes Lando Calrissian on everything here. Right? That's for the nerds in the room, alright? So, um, of whom I am chief, alright? So, but just total betrayal. Right, and, and you, I mean, you look at the words, right? He went to them. They didn't like, they weren't just like chilling like the, the religious leaders and Judas comes by and they're like, hey kid, you know, want some cash? That's not what happens. He goes and finds them. And they're really glad. Wow, we, we didn't even know one of his 12 would do this. Yeah. The others didn't know it either. Jesus always knew it. John 6. He knew from the beginning who was the devil. But nobody else would have really suspected, but he goes, and they said, we're going to give you cash. See, at some point, what Judas did is he, he opened up his heart to this, this, this contamination of sin. It gave him want, it gave him desire, it gave him frustration. He suffered under some irritation toward Jesus, and from that, he goes way out of his way to betray him. I mean, like, way out of his way. He finds religious leaders... They set up a deal, and then it says he looked for an opportunity. I mean, this is first degree, right? This isn't just in a fit of passion because Jesus isn't what Judas hoped for. He, he, you know, Judas does something stupid. No, it's very premeditated, very calculated. And so even though on Monday it was Hosanna, by the middle of the week there's a plot, there's a plan. And it's sad because it's the bookends. It's your closest friends and your most dire enemies working in tandem to crush you. I don't know if you've ever had a close friend betray you, right? But imagine if they betrayed you with your greatest enemy. It's the rapid descent. 
So Jesus has a plot against him. He has a plan that's unfolding to destroy him. And it's all, again, against the backdrop of this Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, in verses 12 to 16, I won't read that, but you can see it where uh, they they set this whole thing up and Jesus says, all right, we're going to go into town. We're going to celebrate this together. It's going to be an intimate environment. You're going to go there. You're going to see a guy carrying a water jug, which is a little bit like seeing a dude with a purse. You know what I mean? Like, wait, that isn't common. But that guy's going to know what's going on. So go to the dude with the water jug purse and he will set it up. So they get to the guy, he says, oh yeah, I've got it all set up for you, ready to go. And so in verse 16, it says, the disciples set out and they went to the city and they found him just as it was told to them and they prepared the Passover. So they were getting the four cups of wine ready because there's four cups of wine that you drink to remember different things that God did in the Exodus. And you prepare the lamb as that Passover to celebrate the blood over your doorpost where God's wrath passes over. And while they're preparing their Passover in a very real and powerful way, God is preparing His Passover too. Right? So, as the plot, the plan, the setting unfolds, God says, yep, as you are preparing your lambs all throughout the city, I am preparing mine. As you are seeking to have me pass over you in wrath this year, I am preparing Him so He will pass wrath over you every year. I will not pour it out on you if you are in him. He's preparing that scene. And yet it's in that scene that you see the betrayer of Jesus. They go to have Passover and it says, And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And it says, And as they were reclining at the table, eating, Jesus says, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him and to one another, Is it, is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve one who is dipping bread into this dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So imagine the scene. Here's Passover. You're celebrating the deliverance of God. Very intimate with your trusted friends, your deepest, closest friends. You've been doing everything for the last few years. I mean, this should be a safe place where you can kind of be yourself and let your guard down. Jesus comes into this safe place with his dearest friends and says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And what's interesting about the scene to me is that Jesus doesn't limit the scope of the who. He leaves it a little bit generic. And you know what would be the most tragic thing? Imagine if you sat down with your 12 closest friends and you said to them, one of you will betray me. And they all said, is it me? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, when it got to me, I'd be like, heck, man, it's not me. I'm not going to do it. But they're like, oh, it could be, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, honestly, they can't just say, it's not me. I mean, this is soul-searching stuff, right? We're, we're, they're, they're just not sure how heartbreaking for Jesus. All this time, all this investment, and they can't speak with conviction. That's going to set it up later for when they try to speak with conviction. It's empty. But there is one, and Jesus knows it's Judas. There's no secret there. It's not like Jesus is waiting to find out. It's one of you. I'm not sure who yet. He knows it's Judas. And more tragically, while Judas is a deep and personal friend of Jesus, uh, it says in the Gospel of John that Satan entered Judas's heart. And how tragic, because Judas was once also, or or, uh, Lucifer rather, Satan, was once also a very dear friend of Christ. Before the world we ever knew, he was the one that was kind of like the lead angel, the one that led the worship of heaven and betrayed. And now the first betrayer inhabits the second betrayer, all to rob glory. And Jesus knows this fully. He knows it completely. He knows what's going on. And so a very painful time. He's really got two friends there that are the betrayers. Lucifer, Judas. What a bummer, man. One is going to betray. Well, unfortunately, all are going to abandon. The reason the twelve had to say, is it I? Is because ultimately none of them are really going to stick very well. In fact, it goes from the betrayer of Jesus. If you jump into verse 27, you realize that Jesus was going to have no one to lean on in that time. Oh, bummer. Somebody's going to betray you, but at least there's 11 other bros around you to hold you up, right? No, not necessarily. It says in verse 27, 
says, Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. So, tragically, you have a plot, you have a plan, you have a betrayer, and now you have this warning where Jesus says, and none of you are going to stick with me. And notice how heartbreaking this is. I mean, again, this is the descent, right? Uh, All will fall away. All of them. And not only that, they're going to fall away and they're going to run because the shepherd will be struck by God. So here's where it starts to really get weird. Jesus is going to be breaking in heart in part because the Father is going to have to come against the Son so that He can atone for us. The Father, God, will strike Christ. Right? So here's the weight. He's going into a time where he will be estranged from God. He will be, for a season, an enemy of God as he becomes sin for us. And he says, when I'm going into that and uh, and my father's going to strike me, you all are going to ditch me. But then look at the grace. He says, but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Even when you ditch me, even when you deny me, I will come back to you. And in the same way that he has risen up, he will raise those 11 men up to newness. That's good news in a bad news world. That's a good promise to people that are bad and, and, and without stability. But it's his promise. Even though no one will lean, he will have no one to lean on, he will be there to raise them all up in a special way. Now, of course, they don't like this. And so in verse 29, it says, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Which is brilliant. Like you dime out the other like 11 guys. You know what I mean? Even though they all stink. I'm in the saddle, baby. What else is he going to say, though? You're all going to deny me. What are you supposed to say? Oh, okay. You know, I mean, of course he pushes back. And then Jesus says, no, I, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, Twice, you will deny me three times. But then he said emphatically, if, uh, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And the other said the same. See, words are cheap. They're easy to say in the moment. I want to make Jesus feel good. He's just said somebody's going to betray them. We all weren't sure. Is it I? Now he's thrown down. We're all going to abandon him. So we need to say we're not going to. See, words are easy to say, but actions, that's really where it's proven. And so all he says, I'm going to stay and I'm going to die. The problem is, by the next scene, he can't even manage to stay awake. Much less manage to stay and die. So, not only is there a plot and a plan and a betrayer, not only does Jesus have no one to lean on, tragically, Jesus has no one even to pray with. No one to lift him up in prayer in one of his darkest hours. In fact, it says, going into verse 32, it says, And they went to the place called Gethsemane, which is the Garden of the Olive Press. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Just something you've never seen from Jesus. You've never seen this kind of anxiety, this kind of concern, this kind of depression. In essence, he is heavy. So he says, Remain here and watch. And then going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, that hour might pass from him, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Not what I want, though. Not my will. But your will is what I want to see done. I mean, think about what Jesus knows. Jesus knows about all who will abandon him. He knows about the one who will betray him. He knows about religion's animosity against him. He knows about the crowds and what they will chant for him. He knows how Israel shepherds will fail the nation and from that they will face judgment. He knows the brutality, the mockery, the, the, the sheer just shame that's designed to be inflicted on him. And we would say that's enough, but then you go to the next level and he's thinking about the cup. Right, the, the cup that he wants to have passed is, is, away from him is the cup of God's wrath. 
right? The, the cup of suffering, the cup of God bringing this crushing to Jesus. It is the striking of the shepherd by the hand of God. That's what Jesus is most disrupted about here. He knows that what he's going to face is all of hell's wrath for all of our sins. He will become everything we do, everything we are, and he will suffer the penalty for that completely. This is why he staggers into the garden, falls to the ground, begins to, in great agony, pray, and starts sweating like great drops of blood because he knows what's coming. It is the dark descent. Religion hates me, my friends are going to abandon me, and God is going to smite me for the sins of all of these people who are doing this against me. That is a heavy painful prospect. In other words, bad news. Profoundly bad news. So it's in the garden of the olive press that hell opens up before Jesus and he's just praying. And he took three guys with him because he needed them to be with him, to love on him, to pray with him, to minister to him. But instead, in verse 37, it says, and he came and he found them sleeping. And he said to Peter... Simon. He didn't say to Peter, Peter. Peter means the rock. He's not a rock. He's a pillow now. So he says to him, Simon, you're asleep. Really? That's what he's saying. You kidding? That's why it's a question mark. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went and he prayed again, and he said the same words. And again, he came and he found them sleeping, and their eyes were very heavy. Again, four glasses of wine and some lamb chops, you're going to be tired. I get it. Right? Their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time, and again, they must have been asleep. And so he says, You are still sleeping and taking your rest? Notice the irony. How many times will Peter deny Jesus? Same amount that he fell asleep. And what did Jesus bury in the middle of that? The first time he found them sleeping. You guys need to watch and you need to pray. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So how do you combat that? You you better be praying. You better be watching. You better be fortified in prayer. If you're going to stand against the temptation to fall. And instead of doing that, Peter's like, right? Disease. And so Jesus had no one to pray with him. And so finally, in verse 41, he says, it is enough. He says, never mind, literally. That's what he says. Forget it. You you guys still aren't getting it. Forget it. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. And so now the descent really intensifies. It really starts to pick up speed. And in a strange sort of way, from this moment all the way to the resurrection, uh, Jesus will be increasingly distant from the presence of the Father. But in a very strange and ironic way, the closest when it comes to fulfilling the will of God. Sometimes when you're doing the will of God, you don't always sense the presence of God. And, and that's going to be true for Jesus for the, for the rest of this. It's only going to get worse. And when he gets to the cross, it's going to be the worst of all. But he's right in the will of God, even though he may begin to more and more not sense the presence of God. Because again, this is the burden he must carry. He must become sin. He must be a cursed thing. He must be counted with the rebels and the robbers and the transgressors. And that is estrangement from God as much as it is taking wrath for their sin. But sadly in this, again, not only did he have no one to really uh, lean on, nobody to pray with, he has no one to stand by in this particular scene. So it says, and immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, and came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once, and he said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. What a strange thing, right? You have the invasion of a season of prayer with 
warriors, right? Swords and clubs and weapons to a prayer group. And in that, you have this betrayer who uses one of the most tender, caring, kind things as a, a device of hatred. I mean, he could have done anything. He could have just said, hey, the guy I point to, that's the one. Right? But no, he chooses to do something really interesting in this. It's katafileo is what it says in Greek. It literally means he came to Jesus, strong embrace, powerful, holding kiss. He embraces, he pulls him tight, he kisses him a long time as he calls him rabbi, which is teacher, mentor, friend, one I have learned from. He doesn't stab Jesus in the back. He takes Jesus by the front, holds him tight, basically says, I love you, and stabs him in the gut. That's really the scene. I mean, Judas didn't have to do it this way. There's something so malice in him. He chooses this medium. He's the one that designs that this is how they're going to out Jesus. Right? So, man, just deep hatred on the part of Judas, which must translate into deep pain on the part of Christ. Bad news. So it says in verse 46, And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew a sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. This is where stupid breaks out. I mean, really, like, you know, like, like Jesus knows exactly what's going on. And we see from the other gospel accounts that it's Peter, of course it's Peter, who busts sword, right? And, and, and here's what's so crazy. You can look at that and, and go at that point, man, that's bold. There's all these dudes with clubs and spears and one guy pulls out one sword. In fact, they had two, like 12 guys and Jesus and two swords. It's, that's not a fair fight, you know, but... They got these two, and Peter busts out one, and he starts swinging. But here's the problem. Peter is turning to exactly what the world turns to. I will become the persecutor, not the persecuted. I will use force to get what I want, as opposed to sacrifice myself for the good of others. So Peter doesn't get that. This is going to be something that he only gets when Jesus returns to him in Galilee and says, if you love me, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. You don't need to grab a sword and fight for my sheep. You need to feed my sheep. Because they're sheep. Peter isn't fully getting that, so he goes and he throws. And then the other gospel accounts, you see Jesus says, man, you live by it, you die by it. That is not how the gospel is getting spread. And he heals the servant who loses the ear. And then he says to the masses, he says, have you come against me as a robber? Literally an insurrectionist? You've come at me like one who takes up swords and fights against the Romans? He says, that's not me. You don't need these swords. He says, you've come to capture me with all of these things, but day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. It's a little bit of a stinger. Like, you guys are kind of cowardly and this is sort of silly, but whatever. It's going to fulfill the Bible. And it was at that news where you've got the, 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 the 11, you've got Judas the betrayer, you've got the 11, two dudes with swords, and they hear, wait, this is not going to go down like we thought. And Jesus is marching down a path that is so unanticipated. This is not the Hosanna that we were all excited about on Monday. This is not the good news. This is bad news. And instead of them seeing the big picture, they take bad news like we do without the overarching, transcending good news. They run. Verse 50. It says, they all left him and they fled. They fled. It was just a little while ago that they all pledged. If I have to die with you, I will not desert you. I will not disown you. I will not deny you. And they all did the knuckle bump. Yep, that's us too, man. Boom, 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 boom. We're all with you, bro. And now, they're all splitting. Oddly enough, there was this one young man in verse 51 who followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked, the first streaker of the New Testament. All right? Um, and, and you think about this, when left with a choice, um, do I stand with Jesus or do I run away naked in shame? He chose naked in shame. I mean, this is how abandoned Jesus is. So, 
put it all together. There's a plot, a plan, a betrayer, no one to lean on, no one to pray with, no one to stand by. All have fled. One has left him in absolute betrayal. And now the cup of wrath is still coming from God. Bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. The dark descent. After this, it goes by the numbers. First of all, he was framed. Verse 53, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all of the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter followed him at a distance. You know what? It's really silly about that. Uh, what did Jesus say to, to, to Peter? How did they really kick things off? Follow me. Peter, I want you to follow me. Peter says, yeah, I want to follow you. He wanted to follow Jesus close. Uh, after the life of Jesus, years later, the rabbis would say, if you want to be a good student under your rabbi, you follow your rabbi so close you are covered in his dust. Jesus is far away from Peter at this point. Peter is following at a distance. He's not going to be covered in his dust because that's going to mean risk. So he lags back. And so they go into the courtyard of the high priest. And there Peter is sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. It says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none, for many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. What's the problem? The problem is they have a verdict. Now they need a charge. Right? I mean, that's all this is. So they're trying to figure it out. So they're, 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 they're playing the game. I mean, basically, it's a game of horseshoes, and Jesus is the pin. Who can get closest? That's what's going to get him. So they're just trying to get closest. So in verse 57, it says, Some stood up, and they bore false witness against him, and they said, We heard him say that, Hey man, he will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and then three days later he will build another not made with hands, and yet even about this, their testimony didn't agree. Why? Because they don't have a great plan. You know what I mean? It's like they're just on the fly. They just hate him so much. I don't know. We got him arrested. What are we going to do? I don't know. We got to come up with something. Just start making stuff up. This doesn't work. Oh, whatever. We'll figure it out. Right? That's just, again, it's just malice. They're just confused. It's, it's, it's a little bit like, you know, the dog that chases the car. Well, they caught it. You know, like the dog catches the car. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know what I mean? What do I do with this? That's this. What, what do I do with this? So finally, it says, And the high priest stood up in the midst of all of them and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? Was it that these men testify against you? And he remained silent and he made no answer. Again, Jesus does not respond to stupid. Because he knows they're not looking for an answer. They don't want to know the truth. They just want to bust him somehow. They want to take something and spin it. And so what Jesus does is awesome. When they're saying, well, what about this? What about that? He's totally silent. And when they say, well, come on, give us something. There's this great thing that unfolds. It says, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I'll answer that one. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. It's like at this point, they want to know, are you a bad guy? And he says, let me help you out. I'm God. What are you going to do with that? I am. Literally, I am. Exodus chapter 3. Are you this? I am. Ego, Amy. I am him. And I will sit at the right hand and I will come on the clouds. You know what he literally is saying there? He says, yes, I am the divine judge. I may sit on the witness stand now as one condemned, but don't worry one day, we're flipping those tables and you will be there. And I will be judge. And we'll see how that goes. That's all he's saying to them at that point. And so it says the high priest then tore his garments and he said, what fuller witnesses do we need? Right? He says, we've just heard blasphemy right from his own lips. He just said he's God. He just said he's divine judge. He just said he's going to sit next to the, the most high and judge us. This can't go good for this guy. We've got to deal with it. So they condemned him and he was deserving of death, they said. And so he goes from framed to beaten. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. This is interesting to me. The people that start slapping him and hitting him and saying, Prophesy. These are white-collar, respectable, um, 
you know, kind of like the, the high society types that are clearly so absolutely angry. They're like a flash mob of just malevolent behavior. They're just, they're just frenzied at Jesus. This is how deep religion can contaminate. And even when they give him to the guards, it's like as soon as he comes to the guards, the guards aren't like, all right, take him into custody, get his fingerprints, you know, that kind of thing. Like, he comes to the guards, and their first action is just to backhand him. That's what it means literally when it says, and the guards received him with blows. It was like the first thing they did was just cuffed him. I mean, that's how angry this whole is. So again, the dark descent. He was framed, he was beaten. But then, he's denied. So you've got the clear enemies manhandling Jesus, but then out in the courtyard, something else is going on. Verse 66, and it says, as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and as Peter was warming himself, she looked at him and said, Hey, are, are, are you with the Nazarene Jesus? Weren't you there with him? He says, but he denied it. He said, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and a rooster crowed. That's like the first warning. That's like the foul buzzer. Jesus said there would be like these two rooster crows and you deny three times. You denied once there's a rooster crow. Are you paying attention, bro? He's not paying attention. So it says, and the servant girl saw him again, and she began to ask about things and say to bystanders, this is the man who was with one or with him. He's one of those people we're talking about. And again, he denied it. So here's Jesus looking at the highest authorities in the religious system saying, I am God, what are you going to do with that? And you have Peter who's freaked out by a servant girl. Saying, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Verse 70, and after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly... You are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I don't know this man of whom you speak. He couldn't even say, I don't know Jesus. He has to distance himself so much, he starts dropping F-bombs, he's swearing to God, I don't know this man, he's nameless to me, I can't even fathom the association. I mean, this is some hardcore rejection and denial. And immediately as he's doing this, and he's angry, and he's trying to defend himself, it says, and a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said this was going to happen, that before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down, and he wept. Peter saw his failure. He realized at that moment, man, that... Is this even repairable? But it's not over for Jesus. For Peter, in some ways, it was sort of over at that point. The next step was picking up pieces for him, personally, internally, which was going to be hard in its own way. But Jesus still has a long road to go this particular day. After being denied by his friend, framed by the religion, beaten by the authorities that were of the religious nature, he was accused. Mark chapter 15. It says, as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus and led him away to be delivered to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and he says, yes, you have said it is so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. I thought it was just one, blasphemy. Now it's many things, right? You've got to pile it on as much as possible. If you're going to condemn a guy, you've got to make sure you come up with everything at this point. You've got to convince Pilate to take his life. Blasphemy isn't going to do it. And so they're just throwing it at him. And Pilate again asked him, he says, Have you no answer to make to these things? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer. So Pilate was amazed. It's like religion has this whole list that Jesus has violated. And then Jesus looks at the list and says, I'm not going to rebuttal. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to rebuke. I'm just going to be silent. And from that, Pilate says, man, I'm really amazed. But here's the deal. You can be amazed by Jesus and still reject him. Just because you're amazed by Jesus doesn't mean anything. The demons believe. They tremble. A lot of people think Jesus is a good teacher and did really great things, but they don't follow. Pilate was amazed, but he doesn't believe. The crowds, the masses, were always amazed. They were blown away by his teaching, by his healing, by his actions. Man, they're like, man, this guy is it. He's the one we're looking for. That was on Monday. Now it's Friday. 
Monday was, he's incredible. Friday is, we're done. And so he was rejected. It says, now is the feast, or now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner whom they would ask for, right? So this is Pilate, he would do this as a tradition. And among those in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, and he says, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up to him. Now here's what's interesting. You want to know what the name uh, Barabbas means? It's, it's two words. Bar means son, and Abbas is Abba, son of the father. That's all Barabbas means, son of the father. And so it's going to be this pitted thing. Do you want... Barabbas, the son of the father? Or do you want Jesus, the son of the father? Do you want the son of the father who took up a sword and tried to fight for your rights? Or do you want the son of the father who's going to lay down his life? Do you want the son of the father who uses force and persecution? Or do you want the son of the father who uses grace and mercy? See, what we love as humans is Barabbas. We love Barabbas. We don't love peace movies. We love action war movies. We love heroes that take life. We don't love heroes that lay down their lives for others necessarily, especially ones that never even take up a weapon to do it. And so they're left with this choice, son of the father, son of the father, two world systems. You want the guy that allegedly gives you good news, but it's going to really be bad news? Or do you want the guy that gives you good news no matter what the bad news is? Which son of the father? So what happens? Well, the chief priests were already on it, verse 11. So they stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said, what should we do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. You just got to crucify him. It was Monday. They said, Hosanna, God save us. Now on Friday, they say, you know what? Go to hell, God. We curse you. That is a bad descent. I mean, again, everything on Monday was sweet. Everything on Friday is just dark. Dark in days. So fickle, so broken, so contaminated by sin that the same people that stood in amazement now stand to condemn him and they're just happily chanting crucify, crucify, crucify there's no Hosanna there's no Hosanna it's not God save us it's just crucify him what's interesting about that is they don't even realize that to crucify him indeed God will save them through that Their desire for crucifixion is actually, in a very special, divine way, a way of Hosanna. But that's not where their heart is. And so it says, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. But then he didn't stop there. Not only was Jesus rejected, but then finally he was humiliated. It says, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That whole scourging thing that we'll get into on Friday, um, that's really designed to just make Jesus look really humiliated and pathetic. That's all it does. And that's what he faces. So you look at that list, plot, plan, betrayal, abandonment, rejection, humiliation, bad news. But then I throw this very simple word in but but in the middle of all of that as Jesus is facing it there is a but and the but is in the middle of all of that story going on there's some stories that we skipped and one of those things is that in the middle of all of this happening and as Jesus sees it unfolding Jesus saw first beauty amidst adversity Right? So all this bad news is coming down. And in the middle of bad news, Jesus sees beauty. Go back to chapter 14, verse 3. Jesus goes to the home of a man named Simon who was a leper that Jesus healed in some way and touched his life and changed him. And it's in that environment that a woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster flask and anoints him with pure nard. So she broke the flask and poured it over his head. Again, you have to understand, what we're going to see in a minute, it was worth about a, a year's wage. And this woman could have just taken it and busted the little top off and and poured some and kept the rest and resealed it. She could have done that. 
But instead, she just snaps the neck of the flask and lets it all pour over Jesus. I mean, it's just a beautiful moment. It's this sacrificial thing where an entire year's wage is just spent in a moment on fragrance. That's it. Right? It's total opulence in that sense. And it's just this precious, beautiful thing where these outsiders, a leper and a woman, are acting like insiders. But then the insiders, the apostles, in verse 4, says that there were some who said uh, to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. You were such a fool. You know what we could have done with that? You know how many good humanitarian things we could have done? Now, chiefly, this is Judas complaining, as we see in the Gospels, and he had other intentions. But apparently, more than one was bothered. The other sad thing is, apparently, Jesus wasn't worth it. Right? So they're all upset. They're literally, it says, flaring their nostrils. That's how it reads in the original language. Because this wasn't practical, and this isn't economical. But you know what Jesus says? He says it's beautiful. Verse 6, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, I want you to notice, where does Jesus see beauty? Jesus sees beauty in a woman, woman anointing him for his death. Right? This is deeply personal. This isn't like she just paints a painting. This isn't like she's just giving food to a poor child. She's anointing him for his death death, and in his death, in his demise, he sees beauty. It's good news, even though really the whole background is bad news. You're going to die. He says, no, this is beautiful. And what she's done is a beautiful thing. Jesus sees beauty amidst adversity. That's what the gospel is all about. Not getting into the bad news of this world, but having good news that transcends it, so that even bad news is good news. This is good news news and it's a beautiful thing he goes on into verse 7 he says the poor you're going to have with you always but this is just good she's anointed me beforehand this is in memorial to her what a beautiful thing another story in this that we passed is not just that he sees beauty amidst hard things but jesus chose thankfulness when he was facing suffering he he, he actually chooses thankfulness right go to verse 22 and it says, and as they were eating, this is the Passover in the upper room, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take this as my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, Eucharistio is the word. When he had given thanks, Eucharistio, he gave it to them, and they all drank it, and he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Notice that he doesn't give thanks because he's going to be risen. He gives thanks because he's going to bleed. Notice that it's a beautiful thing that he's going to be buried. It's not a beautiful thing that he's going to rise. Now, it certainly is beautiful that he will rise. And it's certainly good that, uh, again, he, he will ascend and forever live. But those are not the sources in the text. The source of beauty is his burial. The source of thankfulness is his bleeding. See, what Jesus chooses to anchor himself with is seeing beauty even when life is ugly. What he anchors himself with is being thankful even when he could be not very thankful. He could even be bitter and angry and frustrated, but he doesn't choose that. He says, no, 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 I'm going to choose good news. Even when the news looks bad, I'm choosing good. I'm choosing beauty. I'm choosing thankfulness. Yes, I will be betrayed. Yes, I will be abandoned. I give thanks. In fact, in verse 25 and into 26, he says, I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again until we're all together in the kingdom. And then he goes and he sings a hymn. And he goes out to the Mount of Olives. Think about that. Think about where he sings the hymn. It's all landing between the one will betray me and all will abandon me. In the middle of that, he sings a hymn. In the middle of that, he's thankful. In the middle of uh, a plot against his life by religion and his friend betraying in the middle of that, it is sandwiched in a story of he sees beauty. I hope you're getting what the real story here is, right? Why does Jesus do this? Because he keeps joy as his centrality. 
He gives joy as the centrality. Now, does that mean life was easy for Jesus? No. Hebrews chapter 5. It says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his uh, reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Welcome to Christianity. We learn obedience through how we suffer. We are shaped by how we suffer. We are brought more into the image of Christ, not by, hey, good news as the world sees it, but bad news as the world sees it, redeemed in the good news of Jesus. Because we choose to see beauty in an ugly setting. We choose thankfulness, even in times where it's going to be hard. In fact, we see at the end of Hebrews how this really worked. Hebrews chapter 12, and I close with this. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, what this is saying right here is that for the joy set before him, joy is the north star for Jesus. When life is bad, when life is hard, when life is cruel, when life is unfair, when life punches you in the face and kicks you in the shins and laughs at you on the ground, you take that and you go, wow, I need to choose beauty. I need to choose thankfulness. I need to choose joy. Those things are chosen before they're felt. They are chosen before they are felt. But if we choose them, and we keep the big perspective, and we trust our God, and we seek His will, and we remember that all of this is for our shaping, all things work to good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. If we keep that perspective, man, it's good news, even in a bad news world. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for this opportunity to take a very large chunk of the last few hours of your life and see what it means. I pray that we honor you with what we do and how we do. We love you. We thank you in your name. Amen.